How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. This week, our guest is David Thomas, a Vancouver-based immigration lawyer, or quasi-former immigration lawyer, who we invited on to discuss his career. David started practicing immigration law when he worked at the Vancouver law firm Bullhauser & Tupper in the early 1990s. He then started his own firm, where he developed a sizable practice which focused on investor immigration from South Korea. In September 2014, David was appointed chairperson of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, where he served a seven-year term. That recently ended, and he is now back in Vancouver. During this episode, we discuss what practicing immigration law was like in the 1990s, how the practice of immigration law changed over time, whether it became less fun, uh, things that David learned about the bureaucracy when he was head of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, David's attempt at uh, unsuccessfully running to be a member of parliament, how he started a charity that delivered vitamins to North Korea, and tips for uh, new practitioners who are just getting started in their careers. This is the fourth interview that we have done on Borderlines with immigration lawyers who are either retired or at the tail end of their career. For previous uh, ones, you can listen to episode 54 with Dennis McRae, episode 53 with Joshua Son, and episode 21 with Daryl Larson. I know I've learned a lot from each of these interviews, and uh, I've come away with some valuable ideas on how I want to structure uh, my own career. Anyway, I hope you enjoy today's episode. <laughs>
Yeah, I was just I was just asking Dave about like I didn't even realize he had left the practice of immigration law. How many years was it that you were practicing in the area? Well, I uh, started really in 1989 when I got called to the bar. I mean, even when I was articling at Bullhauser and Tupper, I'd done a little bit of immigration. It was sort of a fringe thing at the time, and uh, I left the partnership at Bullhauser in '94. Uh, I was doing mainly corporate commercial work, but um, with immigration sort of being my little niche side thing. And then I left in 94 to start my own law practice, which did primarily uh, immigration. I did a few other little bits and pieces of things, but it focused on immigration. I did that for 20 years uh, before I went to Ottawa. Wow. And then uh, and then this big move. Tell, tell us a little bit about <laughs> how that happened. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's. Um, it's funny because uh, it wasn't something that I had really sort of seen or, or planned, you know, and, um, you know, and I guess I should back up a little bit. I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, you know, I was on this partnership track. Well, I was, I was a junior partner when I left Bullhauser um, in 94. And it was at a time when I don't think the words uh, work-life balance were ever said in the same sentence together. And, um, you know, it was one of those things that that I was after. And it was um, you know, a little bit surprising to people that I, I decided to leave. But uh, one of the things that, um, that I really wanted to do was to be a little bit more in control of the hours that I worked. And I still wanted to have a... Um, Life, <laughs> life, but I want to have a, a, you know, a successful, profitable uh, law practice. And I also... Sure. I also really enjoyed the travel that I did. I did a lot of overseas travel in the, in, especially in the nineties. And that's always hard to do in the context of a big law firm, you know, where people are always, um, you know, getting phone calls from partners going, what are all these travel disbursements on your docket for what's going on here? You know? And it's like, well, it's like this, it's going to get paid, you know, in a couple of months, it's the way it's kind of a different business model, you know, whereas, you know, traditionally, you know, big law firms, you know, it's you bill by the hour and you send a bill out at the end of every month, depending on how much time you worked on every file. And and that's fine. But it, but as, as people practice in the immigration world and when you've got competition like, you know, consultants that you've got to, you know, uh, compete against in the open marketplace, you have to be a little bit creative sometimes in how you approach your, your billing strategies. And so uh, that for me at that time was very difficult in the context of a, of a large law firm. And, and so then going out on my own uh, suited me very well, because then I just had the free range to, to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, but, you know, there's also the headache of running your own small law firm as well, which maybe you guys are familiar with as well. Oh, too yeah. familiar. Too familiar. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a clientele that came with you from Bullhauser when you started, or did you almost have to start anew? Um, well, that's an interesting uh, question because what happened really was uh, I had uh, Bullhauser. One of the reasons I was attracted to Bullhauser coming out of law school was the fact that it was a, a firm at that time that had, uh, and this is in the 80s, a long time ago, it had an office in Hong Kong and it had an office in Taipei and it also had an office in uh, Shanghai, China, which I, I'm told was the first Western law firm in Shanghai. Uh, and that was a maritime practice that that they had there. And um, and so the, the firm was very Asia focused um, very early on, particularly on the, on the corporate commercial side and, and the real estate side. And so when I got hired on after articling, they put me into that Pacific Rim corporate group. And, uh, you know, when I got to the firm and they asked me, what kind of areas are you interested in? I said, yeah, I'm interested in business law and I'm interested in immigration. And they're like, what? Immigration? Why would we do that? 
And, you know, and, and this is to put this into context. I mean, so back in the 1980s, um, you know, immigration was not a big thing. I mean, there, there's, there's been ebbs and flows in immigration, but in the 1980s, it was, it was very little, it was like family class. And there was, uh, I think, a very, very, very short sort of uh, skilled worker kind of independent category, we call them those days. And, and it was a sort of an occupation demand list. It was very, very limited. And uh, the Mulroney government decided to bring in something. Well, there was sort of this entrepreneur program that they'd sort of been playing with about this idea, but maybe bringing people in with business experience and capital to come into Canada. And then around 86, 87, they started talking about something called associated uh, entrepreneurs. And uh, believe it or not, in my last year of, uh, of law school uh, at Osgoode, I took an immigration law class. I was probably the first student there to focus in on <laughs> immigration because I never heard. It was all refugees and that sort of stuff. And, um, and I re- remember writing a paper on the uh, then fledgling investor program. Uh, which was uh, hugely interesting to me because uh, I w- had an interest in business law, but I was also very interested in immigration. And and so uh, when I got to Bullhauser, I was sort of like looking down the future, kind of going, you know, this is a this is a growing area and not just on the sort of business immigration side, but also on the uh, just if you're if you're dealing with international companies uh, and you're focusing on things overseas, you 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 know, the part of that is um, is, a, is an immigration component. And I remember uh, there was this one time when I was still 30 junior at the firm and uh, I got a phone call from the most senior uh, partner who was in the corporate group up on the 32nd floor. And they phoned me and they're like, Thomas, get up here right now. We need you <laughs> get up there. And, uh, and uh, the firm, I know the firm had been working on a very, very big uh, forest industry transaction involved a, a Japanese company that had invested a very big sum of money uh, here in British Columbia. And the firm had been busy on this for, for months. And uh, there they were in the boardroom with the vice president of the Japanese company that had been sent over from Tokyo to uh, oversee their investment. And he had a question. He had two children and they couldn't get into school because they didn't have study permits. <laughs> And he needed to solve this problem. I could just imagine his wife was probably bugging him every morning. You know, it's like, fix this problem for the kids. And he goes to the firm and they're like, who knows anything about this? You know, oh, yeah, that associate down on the 26th floor. And, you know, and then I think that sort of dawned on them, you know, when they realized, you know, suddenly uh, I'm one of the most important lawyers in the room to this guy because it's a very personal, personal personal problem to solve let's put it that way and I think that all of us understand that you know that you know it doesn't sort of matter you know how you know how many assets you control how big a company you run you know the immigration thing is a very personal thing to you and to your family and your children and to your future generations of your family and uh, it's a very important thing and I think that you know the the firm uh, began to understand that. And, and then at an immigration practice started to build, they brought in Peter Scarrow, uh, another famous local practitioner. And, uh, and uh, we hired Bill Caffel, uh, an, an ex-immigration officer to, to start up this um, little immigration team at Bullhauser, which I was a part of. And, uh, and uh, so again, I said it was a minority in my practice, but then the firm uh, started to uh, get interested in South Korea which is interesting. And that is where um, I came into a sort of a very busy practice. We had one lawyer 
at the firm that uh, he was about the same age as me, a big, tall, white guy, but he could speak fluent Korean. He'd spent some time there when he was younger and he'd been seconded with a big firm there. And the, you know, the, the law firm in Vancouver was obviously looking for some big corporate clients trying to land a big fish. And, uh, but he was there and he was networking a lot and he realized that there was a real demand for immigration. It was a real interest uh, in South Korea, in immigration to Canada. And I think that, um, you know, more so those days, maybe even than today. And uh, he he sort of sent a, a, a message back saying, you know, maybe we should bring someone over like Dave Thomas to uh, to meet with some of these immigration consulting companies because we're really looking to partner with somebody that can help them do a large volume of cases. And that's how uh, I first went over there in 1992. And, uh, and it was, you know, Sometimes in, 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 in business, you can find yourself in the right place at exactly the right moment. And that was exactly how it was for me. Um, and I'm sure if you, you interview some other older guys like me, there are lots of us were, um, you know, uh, it was a beaten track to South Korea. It was a good market. But right when I got there was just before Canada dropped the visitor visa requirement uh, for South Koreans. And and it was still fairly difficult for them to get visas to go to the United States, although there's big interest in that. So suddenly, uh, you know, Korean Air was ramping up daily flights. Air Canada was flying back and forth. And there was this tremendous interest in immigration to uh, to Canada from South Korea. So that became a little bit of my niche. And, um, and then uh, I was going, so I was traveling to Korea about four or five times a year, going for a couple of weeks at a time. And then when I left, um, you know, the firm was not interested in that relationship anymore. And so they said, you can continue working with those people if you want. And so that was the backbone of my um, my law practice when I started was the work I was doing in South Korea. Why did uh, the firm lose interest? I don't know, to be honest with you. Yeah. It's like, but it was bigger a little, fish. <laughs> it was a bigger fish, I guess. You know, yeah. and it was kind of a, it was kind of a uh, it was kind of a goofy thing, right? You know, you go over there and you uh, you know sign up all these clients, and and I you know the travel expenses were huge every time we came over stuff, and but you they'd offset on the clients, but you you know it it was just sort of a different business model. I don't think that they yeah. were really all that keen on it, and um, and so I did the unthinkable and uh, walked away from my partnership and and um, mm-hmm. started my own little shop. Have you found that the travel, like, did you, did the travel decline as the years went on? Like we've interviewed a fair number of lawyers who practiced in the nineties and early two thousands. And it seemed like immigration lawyers traveled a lot more then than they do now. Like, I don't think I've ever left the province for work travel. I don't know about you, Deanna, outside of conferences. Neither. Like, did I think you it know- depends very much on the nature of one's practice. I think the ones that travel a lot are those who are more involved in the investor style immigration, like the business immigration. I think those with skilled worker, with like uh, litigation practices, enforcement practices, or just like economic class, I don't think tend to be the big travelers. But I don't know. I don't know what you think. Um, it seems to me that those that are kind of doing more active recruitment of big business clients tend to be the ones that are doing most of the business travel. I think I think it's I think it, it's true that it did decline. I think that you know around the you know 
around the turn of the century, it, you know, the internet was becoming more prevalent. Uh, it, it was, you know, just seemed to be less of a demand for it. And, and then, you know, when the ministerial instructions came along in 2008 and started to, you know, really change the nature of, you know, how you did business and then they canceled and all the business immigration programs, it was, it was, uh, a big shift. And, um, and so there really wasn't the, um, you know, the need to do it, but I mean, it was, um, I was just sad in a way, but for me personally, you know, I, by that time, I mean, I had a family with small kids and my wife preferred me to be around more often. So, you know, it, it was fine, but, but I think that that's a fair um, observations that, uh, that, you know, it, 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 it's not the, the practice these days is, is quite different than it used to be. And, um, and in those days it was a lot of going out and uh, meeting people in person, having dinners and, um, yeah. you know, it's, the other interesting thing too, and I was I was listening to uh, one of your former podcasts with uh, Dennis McRae, who's uh, you know more senior than I am, and uh, he's talking about the old days. And I remember going to um, going to Seoul, and every time I would go there, I could arrange to have uh, a private one-on-one meeting with the um, program manager for immigration, and so they would let me into the embassy and we'd have a cup of coffee and a chat and everything else. And I'd usually have a list of, you know, 15, you know, problem cases are going, what the heck's going on? And, you know, he'd sit at his, at his, at his desk and he'd punch in all these file numbers for me and give me like a little verbal, you know, update Oh, this one needs this, this one needs that. Oh, this one, I, I'll send a memo to the, I'll send an email yeah. to the officer and get them on this one and stuff. And it was, you know, it was kind of, a, you know, I guess for whatever reason, I mean, they just kind of, those relationships all ended, but to be honest with you, they, it was super efficient to be able for to sure. go through. And, for sure. <laughs> yeah. When I had, when I started practicing, the overseas offices were largely closed off, but Hornby, you could still call people to correct work permit mistakes or things like that. And now it's yeah. all as uh Raj Sharma describes it, just the Borg where yeah. sometimes you don't even get like an officer acronym. It's just, immigration Canada at the bottom of a letter not even a location where the decision was made so you know the system will ask you where is your application being processed and you know the answer is I have no idea in the world I couldn't even venture a guess right now but you know I mean I remember that I used to know the name of the head of the case management branch and we were on you know first name basis and when I got into trouble before we would go to litigation we would hey, is this something that we can work out between the two of us, you know? And a lot of the times we got things resolved in that 15-day window before we had to file a leave application, you know? I understand that, like, the depersonalization of the immigration system, even just in the short space of, well, it's not that short, but the short space of my career, you know, like um, the attrition of any personal contact within the system. And now when something goes really awry that there's literally no touch point, um, you know, that we've seen it even just in the short term. Um, when I see when people talk about 20 and 30 year careers, I can just imagine it's like really threefold um, the degree to which um, those things have gone away. And as you you referenced Dennis's uh, uh, podcast, and I remember him talking about when he used to like walk into an immigration office with your application for a work permit, walked up to the desk, made your representations and walked away with your work permit at the spot, as opposed to, 
you know, when your application now gets sent in through a portal, the applicant can't even see what's happened because it's been sent by their representative. It drops into a black hole for six months. They have no idea what's going on. An email that's not even got a name on it goes to the rep. Like, it's just like, again, like it's really, um, I understand that there's need for efficiency, but um, the, the lack of that human element really does show that the change in the nature of the way of doing business. Well, let me share. Let me share a couple of insider secrets from uh, mm-hmm. my seven years in Ottawa. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing that I learned uh, about the federal bureaucracy in Ottawa is that the average amount of time that a federal bureaucrat stays in the same position is twenty six months, and uh, that is just the nature of that business. Is that people are driven to. Uh, get promoted to the highest level they can to get, you know, the highest earning years before their pension sets in. And so there's really big uh, attrition within the federal bureaucracy at all departments, including immigration. The other thing that struck me, um, you know, I would, and of course I was at a very senior level in Ottawa and, but as an outsider, um, but I saw a lot of resumes come across my desk because I was involved in a little bit of the HR and we were hiring people for the tribunal and, I did see people uh, who came from uh, CIC or IRCC, and um, how can I say this in a polite way? It it struck me that there were some people that had been in fairly responsible decision-making positions at CIC who were not that high up in the overall ladder in the bureaucracy in Ottawa. And it always struck me. I was like, wow, these are, you know, such incredibly important decisions for, for our clients and for people who, you know, whether it's a work permit extension or an agency application or something like that. And the level of people making those decisions were, you know, to me anyway, maybe not to you guys, but to me, were shockingly not very senior people, uh, tasked with making those very important decisions. And uh, so those are the, uh, the kind of takeaways I have from that. Uh, and, yeah. and I mean, they let summer students make, you know, life-changing decisions for people. So yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. We should get into like, just for people who don't know, like uh, when were you appointed chair of the Canadian Human Rights Commission? Uh, tribunal. The tribunal. tribunal. The commission is a different sister organization. So that happened in 2014. So, and to back up a little bit, what happened was in 2013, um, I, uh, you know, I was, I uh, was appointed as a part-time member of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal uh, based here in Vancouver. And so the Human Rights Tribunal is, is uh, basically a panel of administrative law judges who deal with discrimination complaints under the Canadian Human Rights Act. And so the um, the act calls for up to 15 members to be appointed, a combination of full-time members who must be residing in the national capital region, uh, and then a few um, part-time members who could be scattered about uh, different regions. And so uh, I was appointed in 2013 to be a part-time member here based in Vancouver. And, um, and I, uh, really enjoyed the work and it was, it was, it was very interesting to me. And, um, you did this and, while still maintaining a full-time immigration practice, basically. Yeah. Which was wow. kind of interesting because, you know, they'd send me off to go do a hearing in Victoria for a week, uh, which was very fun and exciting. 
except that, you know, by the time, you know, I got paid uh, and you get paid by, you know, on a T4 with all the taxes deducted and everything else. So I'm sort of basically covering my overhead with my two full-time employees in my office back in Vancouver. And I'm kind of working for free. Uh, but, you know, I didn't mind. It was really, it was really fun work. And, and, um, and so the uh, tribunal chairperson job uh, became available. It had been vacant for a little while. And um, I sort of thought about this and thought, you know, I wonder if, I wonder if that might be something I could do. So uh, I inquired about it and, um, and it was, and my inquiry was received quite well. Um, there were a number of people obviously applying for the job, but um, what made me a little bit unique was I was actually from British Columbia and uh, what I realized in my seven years in Ottawa is that nobody ever moves from British Columbia to Ottawa. Like, yeah. why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> and, uh, but I'm a little crazy. My wife's from Ontario and I went to law school there. And, um, and what year was it? this was in 2014 um, that I got, I, I went to Ottawa. And I, uh, I speak some French because uh, I went to school in, in Switzerland many years ago. And uh, so combination of things, they were interested in that. And uh, I remember they flew me out uh, for an interview um, in early 2014. And it was at the, uh, what was then called the Langevin Block, the Prime Minister's office uh, building. And it was very formal. I went up to this uh, top floor boardroom and uh, it overlooked Parliament Hill and uh, had all portraits of all the prime ministers along the hallway. And I sat down with this committee of people from the Department of Justice and the Minister of Justice office, the Privy Council office, and uh, and the prime minister's office. And they, you know, peppered me a bunch of questions or anything else. And I left there and walked out of the building and thought, wow, that was pretty cool. I, I don't even care if I get the job. That was such a cool thing, you know, and uh, be in that building and everything else. And, and then, um, and then a few weeks later, I got a call from uh, Peter McKay, who was the minister of justice at the time and said, congratulations, we'd like you to take the job. And so then I had to break the news to my teenage daughters who had <laughs> burst out into tears when they found out the family was moving to Ottawa. Oh my goodness. That's funny. What was the succession uh, like for, cause you had a team and yeah. did you know what the plan was before you uh, took the position or did you have to scramble and how much time did you have? Like when Ad Peter Edelman became a judge, he had pretty much zero time to transition files. And I think people had to fly back from abroad on vacation to scramble, to figure out what to do. Is it the same when you're appointed to the chair of uh, Canadian human rights tribunal? It wasn't quite the same, but you know, and yeah, that judicial appointment thing is yeah, pretty sudden. But what happened for me was um, they uh, they asked if I could start two weeks later, and uh, I was like, okay, wait a second, because <laughs> no. in like I said, you in the federal bureaucracy, right, where uh, the turnover happens all the time. People are used to this, like, oh yeah, here's my two weeks' notice, I'll be gone, and all the work on my desk is somebody else's problem now, and you know, I'm just moving yeah. on, put my pencil down, and leave. Um, you know, in the real world, it's not quite like that, and especially if you've got, um, you know, a, a practice like I had. So I, I asked them to give me two and a half months to wrap things up, and and so what I did was I went to go speak to our friends uh, Gordon Maynard, uh, Rudy Kieshard, and uh, Alex Stoichevich, who I knew fairly well uh, over the years, and I said to them, "Hey, I've got a I've got a proposition for you." 
um, I'm going to um, I'm going to take this job in Ottawa, but um, I've got two uh, full-time staff with me and I've got 220 active client files. And, you know, some of them are transactional, some of them are ongoing clients. And I said, I'm, I'm not looking to sell my practice, but I'm ready to give it to you. But I have two conditions. And I said, the first one is uh, I want you to offer uh, jobs to my, my staff on the same terms and conditions that are on now. And the second ask is if I go to Ottawa and in six months, I realize I've made the dumbest mistake of my career. <laughs> I would like to come back and you guys make some room for me to carry on my practice with you. And nice. uh, so they said, yep, yeah, no problem. And in fact, one of my staff is still working uh, with them uh-huh. to this day. Um, but yeah. And so what happened was to, it, you know, it was complicated. And this is the thing I was saying at the outset is that, to unwind your law practice is very difficult. So, so I, you know, with the, you know, consent of the law society, I actually merged my practice with their practice, you know, right when I got appointed. So for a couple of months, I was technically uh, part of that law firm and then I resigned. And so all the clients and all the money that was in trust and everything else um, stayed with them. And, um, and then, you know, the, the process of unwinding your own law firm, I mean, it took me probably eight or nine months. I mean, it was really, uh, you know, lots of paperwork, um, audits of your accounts, um, your, you know, everything. I mean, it was really, uh, it wasn't that easy. It was a big, it took a long time and a lot of effort to, uh, to finally uh, close everything off. Did you ever have to fly back from Ottawa to Vancouver just for a law society compliance uh, I don't don't think I had to do that, but I did come back to Vancouver. That first year, what happened was my wife and my daughters stayed uh, here in Vancouver, and I went by myself one year ahead. Um, but I, and I came back several times. But yeah, I had I actually owned my office space as well, so I had to I had to sell that as well. Which, uh, which in hindsight, I sold it at the wrong time. I went up <laughs> the value about three quite a lot actually a couple of years later, but. Uh, you oh, you own the space? You weren't leasing? Yeah, I owned some space at the time. So, um, but yeah, and it was, it was kind of, you know, the whole move to Ottawa was kind of crazy, but, you know, it, and, and it was a real big left turn in my career. Uh, but, you know, the, the human rights work is very interesting. And there's, and there's many cases that are immigration related, believe it or not. There are uh, a number of cases I've, I've had over the years that had an immigration component. And, um, and as the chairperson, I was the person that delegated all the files. And so um, I had about a half caseload uh, as a full-time member would, because I had a lot of other management responsibilities as well. But but um, I'd often earmark uh, immigration-related cases for myself just because of my, my background and expertise in that area. So um, what sort so of immigration sorry. issues would arise? Just like someone discrimination in the employment context against immigrants or um well more more so against um cic itself or people Mm -hmm. like uh for example people um who um well for example people i'll give some examples people who had secondary um uh, examinations at when they're going through the airport security you know they and some people would get um flagged for automatic you know sort of supplemental examinations based on being not on a no fly list, but a, a flying a person flying who we're kind of interested in. Yeah. Or uh, it's we also- the federal tribunal, it has to be a complaint against uh, 
like a federal um, body. Right. Am I right? Yes. Right. So, so it could okay. be against it could be against the airline. It could be against right. uh, CATSA. Crown uh, Corporation. Uh, right. IRC. Or an immigration yeah. department. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, yeah. Okay. So fairly, fairly neat stuff. You know, we had some really, we had some really good stuff. We actually had a, uh, we also had a, um, a kneecap case around the same time as the famous Ishak case. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, as you guys, as lawyers will remember that the Ishak case is really fought on whether or not a, uh, a regulation is more superior uh, to a, to a policy. I think that was sort of the, the issue there. And uh, whereas the case in front of us was actually based on the good stuff, like is this discrimination based on uh, religion or national origin and that, that kind of stuff. But when the um, Federal Court of Appeal decided to uh, uphold the uh, Federal Court ruling on the Ishak case, uh, that case unfortunately got withdrawn uh, and the complaint was dropped because it was then able, to, the complaint was then able to get her citizenship uh, without removing her bail. I think some other good cases. There's some other cases around. Um, you guys still call it the black hole of CSIS when somebody gets uh, a background check referred to CSIS and then you don't know what happens for like a year yes. or something. Yeah. That still happens. A year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I haven't had one of those for a while, but um, I don't think that yeah. it's changed. This yeah. year it's the black hole of Edmonton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. But- That's true. And uh, I mean, obviously, the Canadian, the appointment to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal is a left turn in your career. You also ran for office at one point. That's right. Very, very long time ago. Was uh, that when you were with Bullhauser or when you had your own firm? No, it's fairly a couple of years later in 1997. I was uh, the candidate in West Vancouver for the um, pro- the then obscure Fifth Party of Parliament, the Progressive Conservative <laughs> Party, who only had two members sitting and Jean Charest was the leader. Uh, that was 25 years ago. And here Jean Charest is running uh, yeah. leadership uh, again. But yeah, you know, I'm, that's kind of, you know, I'm, I, that's kind of who I am really. I'm sort of a kind of socially progressive guy, but I'm a fiscal conservative, you know, I'm, and, and so that seemed like a good fit for me. So yeah, I was, I, I ran and, uh, you know, as my classmates at my 20th year high school reunion, um, pointed out they said dave thomas the only guy who could win who, who could win less votes than the ndp in west vancouver <laughs> how uh did your practice like um when you're campaigning full-time or is that why you lost <laughs> why you had, uh, no, you you know, had to manage an immigration practice you know it wasn't that it didn't go on for that long you know it was it was about i guess a five-week kind of uh mm. in fact the funny thing was Right when the writ dropped, the writ dropped a little bit unexpectedly, and I had a trip planned to South Korea that I really couldn't get out of, and uh, and so I had I went to Korea for like three days, and I came back, and uh, and as I'm in the car from the airport, my campaign manager's on the phone. He goes, he goes, let me just read you something from today's Vancouver Sun. I'm like, okay, and he goes. Well, we've been trying to get in touch with candidate Dave Thomas for several days now, and he just seems to be completely missing. And I'm like, okay, you're making that up. (laughs) So, nope, he's not making it up. (laughs) So that was, I'm now letting that secret out. Yes, I was in South Korea during the writ, but 
the rest <laughs> of it was uh it was just like the it was so crazy it was so much fun i really had a good time though it was really really fun uh you know nine all candidates debates so i was it's big riding and it was um it was a lot of fun but you know that i would say that that's not the reason uh that i got appointed in 2014 but i think that you know these big appointments are you know they have a little bit of a political tinge to them and and having that sort of pedigree kind of background you know helps that uh you know when you when you're being appointed by um you know a government it's a cabinet decision right the decision to appoint you has to be approved by cabinet so you know uh you know often if you're if you've got a very strong background with the wrong party it may not happen for you so we've interviewed even like some uh ex-immigration ministers who've uh acknowledge that even when it comes to trp requests you know the party does uh matter a bit really yeah wow, interesting yeah uh well i don't know <laughs> It is what it is, right? But you know, it's 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 um, and sometimes the process works very well, and sometimes it doesn't. And I and I would say that um, you know, to the credit of the of the Liberal Party, uh, when Justin's team uh, took over, they did change the process for these uh, GIC appointments, and it's a little bit more uh, transparent. Um, and in fact, the, the nice thing was that I had a chance to participate on those selection committees for members of the yeah. tribunal, and. Um, and so it was uh it was good to have some input on that but ultimately decisions are you know they are they are politically uh uh i wouldn't say influenced but i mean but it, it, just to say it does it's not that it plays a zero role uh, at the end of the day Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. What insights do you have kind of looking back onto the years as an immigration practitioner? I sort of wonder... Uh, once you've wrapped up in immigration practice and you're kind of able to look back on it uh, in hindsight, is it an area that you think was like a good choice for you? It's, is it something that you think was, is sort of like an area you would recommend others getting into in the future? Um, you know, I'm just kind of interested on your perspective in that. You know, uh, for me personally, what, what really uh, I feel looking back on, you know, the 25 years I was doing it was that, you know, how enriched my life was by meeting so many very interesting people, accomplished people uh, from around the world. And I would say that even a number of my former clients have remained friends with me uh, to this day because they're just great people and we get along really well. And we, we, we've continued on um, as friends after the business relationship. And, and that, uh, has been, I think for me, you know, what was really the most enriching thing about it is, and as I said this before, you know, you really, 
you really touch people's lives in a very significant way when you're when you're an immigration lawyer. And it's it's funny how you know years later uh, I had so many people when they were getting their citizenship uh, their citizenship ceremony having their picture taken with the citizenship judge and then got their certificate in their hand and they'd send me this photo like it's like then you heard from them for years and like you're the guy that helped me you know change my life and got me permanent residence status and here i am now four years five years later as a citizen of canada i'm so proud of this moment and you're the person that i'm thinking of and you know and I, you, you guys probably have the same thing i you know it's i don't think it's that uncommon but it but you really do uh, make such an impact on people's lives. And it's, I think that's totally different than being a business lawyer or a real estate lawyer yeah. or, you know, litigation yeah. lawyer. It's just, it's just not the same thing, but in immigration, you know, you really have that chance to, to really help people. And, and I just feel like in some ways I've been swimming in a pool of good karma for a number yeah. of years now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. That, that chance, you know. And the I other think that thing is you- a major driver, you know, that it's it's about the people that you meet and about sort of like following people along on these journeys that generally um, have a positive outcome. I think that um, it does very much. I mean, everyone knows that immigration has its own little niche areas. I think for some, um, you know, people that are doing more of the litigation and enforcement, uh, you tend to be following people more through a journey that more often than not has a negative outcome rather than a positive outcome. So it can be a little bit more uh, disillusioning over a longer trajectory. I just, my my sort of follow-up question was um, in terms of the decision to change the path of your career was part of it like immigration burnout frustration around how the practice was going or just that you kind of were like ready for a new era um well i think in a way um it was a combination of things i was ready for uh you know something new and this and and i you know having you know run for parliament 25 years ago i mean there was part of me that you know, there's that old saying that says, you know, that there are two kinds of people that run for office, right? People who uh, want to be somebody and people who want to do something. And, you know, I always wanted to sort of be able to sort of give back in a, in a way and, and try to do something that I felt was meaningful. And so this chance to go to Ottawa in a very senior level and in a very important area like human rights just seemed like a great opportunity for me to be able to do something uh, in a different way than I thought before and so you know when the opportunity presented itself and you know and um few people thought i was crazy but um my wife was generally supportive you know it uh it really felt like the right thing to do and having said that you know the other part of your question was you know the you know i had a very uh interesting practice because of my my background in corporate law uh, I didn't do exclusively business immigration, but I did a lot of it. And I was the guy, I was a kind of a go-to guy for uh, entrepreneurs who had uh, terms and conditions on their visas. They had to, to, to do something, a significant business investment within two years of landing. That was a big part of my practice for a long time. And, uh, and it was something- There wasn't that, a lot of people doing that with the same kind of special, like specialization, I would say. I think that's right. You know, and I used to speak at, at you know, CBA, uh, CLEs and stuff like that on the, on that topic, because I was one of the few that kind of really had that as a niche. And, um, and so then all that went away. And, uh, and then, so you're just kind of left with, well, I'm doing work permits, I'm doing some skilled worker stuff, but then skilled worker became difficult when, you know, 
you know, after the ministerial instructions, they started limiting the uh, the intake, and and uh, it just became sort of for me anyway, it became less fun. I, I you know, I just was just like it just was harder, and it was just uh, uh, ranking and a number and turning everybody into a bit of a widget. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I think less fun is also the words that uh, Dennis used. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dennis used less fun a whole bunch. Yeah. He was like, well, I won't tell you what Dennis's idea of fun is. I heard a lot about that. Um, It's not always politically appropriate, but um, (laughs) his idea of fun was definitely, um, it's a bygone era thing, but but definitely the part about like, you know, walking into a room with like a briefcase full of, uh, you know, liquor bottles and sitting down and chatting and they're like working it out and like, you know, sitting down with the, you know, with people and kind of um, coming up with solutions and, you know, making powerful submissions, all of this kind of stuff. He liked the three, the theater, the drama, he liked the, you know, compassionate stuff. He liked, you know, coming up with clever strategies and all this kind of thing. And I think he felt like it became very much like, you know, plugging widgets into holes and turning people into scores and rankings and all that kind of stuff. I think he found it very disillusioning. Yeah. You know, it's definitely, it definitely has changed uh, over the years for sure. And, you know, I remember when I was at Bullhauser again, I guess, junior lawyer and people were asking me, you know, why are you interested in immigration law? And I distinctly remember uh, a 1985 edition of Canadian Lawyer magazine that I read when I was in law school, and they were interviewing some high-profile uh, immigration lawyers. I think Dennis might have been one of them in the article, and they were talking about you know flying back and forth to Hong Kong and other Asian places and doing these applications and charging ridiculously high fees for you know work that wasn't all that complicated. And I was like, oh. Sounds pretty good to me. Actually, yeah. The other thing you did, though, and I definitely want to mention it, was you. Um, and I don't remember if it started from an immigration application, but you started that charity to deliver vitamins to North Korea. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's quite interesting. Yeah, and so uh, so so South Korea was sort of my niche market for for twenty years, and I uh, I always uh, advertised in the Korean newspapers, and I had Korean speaking staff, and you know, the real funny sto- funny follow up to that is that my my son uh, speaks fluent Korean and has been living in Seoul for the last four years. He just got his his MBA last year from Seoul National University, so. This family of mine uh, has had this very long connection with with South Korea for a long time. Um, but anyway, uh, I got to know uh, a, a charity called First Steps and a woman named Susan Ritchie, who um, who has been the official translator for three of our prime ministers, um, Kretien, uh, Martin and Harper. And when you know when our prime ministers would speak with the president of South Korea, she'd be the Canadian translator and very interesting woman. And she started the little charity here in Vancouver out of her basement called First Steps. And she um, donates uh, soybeans from Ontario uh, to North Korea. It's very complicated to do this, but in the process, she's now at the stage where she's uh, providing this very nutritious soy milk to a hundred thousand underprivileged North Korean children every day. And uh, these are children that are living in orphanages or uh, in poor rural uh, areas. And, um, and so anyway, I, uh, over a number of years, I helped uh, raise money for her. And then I had this idea uh, with three of my former clients. Uh, I said, you know, I had different skills and talents. And I said, why don't we come together and try to do something uh, 
uh, to try to, to bolster this. And so we came up with a, a company called One for One, which was uh, the idea was that we would be selling uh, vitamins. And for every vitamin that we sold, we would donate to um, to uh, North Korean orphans and, and go there through um, piggybacking basically onto uh, first steps. And, uh, and so, and we found a local manufacturer that, that helped us with the, um, the manufacturer and the donated product and everything else. And so that led to two very interesting trips myself, uh, to North Korea. Um, and in fact, the second trip, I took my son who was about 16 years old, uh, with me and they, I can just say young mind completely blown. <laughs> He was like, it was, and that's probably part of the reason he's in, in South Korea today. I mean, it's an incredible experience to to see, you know, what a stark difference uh, North and South Korea are. And, um, you know, I always say to people, you go to Seoul, it feels like you're walking 10 years into the future. I mean, they're so high tech and they're doing it, it's moving so fast. And you go to Pyongyang and it's like, you just walked 50 years into the past. It's, you know. Well, I think I remember, uh, I think I saw photos of a, um, your son at like a North Korean school with kids who are his age and he's a head taller uh, than yeah. everyone else just because of like the malnutrition. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a real thing, actually. That is a real thing. Uh, he's freakishly tall on his own. He's six foot six. Yeah, actually, it could also just be <laughs> but, like father, but like true. son. <laughs> but it's true that they are, uh, they are, uh, you know, very, it, 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 there's a real malnutrition problem. And I think that, you know, right now, we're not hearing much, but I think because of the pandemic and some other issues that, that there may be a bit of a famine going on right now. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it, anyway, it's a, it, it, it was an incredible experience. Unfortunately, that whole charity thing uh, wound up when I moved to Ottawa and we, um, we didn't go as far as we would have liked to have uh, done with that, but, uh, but we did some good and it was, uh, it was a good experience while we uh, had that opportunity. So with those, like there's, uh, starting your immigration practice, running to be an MP, starting the charity, uh, Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Are there any other like pivot or moments in your, we'll call it all your immigration career <laughs> that uh, were like defining moments or moments that you especially look back on fondly? Well, uh, there are lots of, you know, uh, you know, especially the travel and meeting people and, and going to different parts of the world. You know, I did several trips to the Middle East. Um, and I did, uh, uh, you know, quite a number of trips to Asia. I probably went to Korea about 50, 60 times, uh, you know, and there are lots of um, lots of great moments along the way. Um, but I think it's mostly the people at the end of the day. When I look back on it, I think it's really mostly the um the opportunity to to really get to know people. And I guess like, unlike maybe some other lawyers, I always uh, gave a lot of my personal time to be, to be social. Like if a client invited me for dinner, uh, I'd often go and uh, spend time with them and get to know them as a person. And I think that they appreciated um, the opportunity to get to know that, you know, a Canadian, someone was born and raised here. And, and I think that that, um, you know, speaks a lot uh, to, um, you know, the nature of the people, frankly, the people, when you think about it, the people who really got the inclination to pick up uh, from where they are, where they were born and raised and to, you know, to move themselves and their family to a foreign country. I mean, it takes quite an extraordinary person 
and personality type to do that. And uh, I think within that pool of people who who have the um, you know the motivation to do that, you'll find you'll find some very very interesting people. And uh, and for me, that's bring, as I say, the biggest enrichment for me is getting to know uh, those people on a personal level and 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 really enjoying their company and uh, the experience of knowing them. Yeah. The part that I often reflect on is when someone who just moves here in their first three months goes to all these places or has all these experiences that me having lived here most of my life never have done. Like you have clients who come and they're like, oh yeah, we just uh, rented a boat to go uh, watch the World Cup on a a yacht off uh, like Bowen Island or, Oh, we've gone hunting in Revelstoke. And I just sit back and I'm like, I never do any of these things. <laughs> like uh, my clients are, uh, you know, learning more about it than I, uh, I know. Yeah. Isn't that true? As my wife always says, we have to go to Bouchard gardens one of these days. And every yeah. spells a sponsorship application you filed, right? <laughs> 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 I guess those things are uh, are in common, but um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's it, you know, I, I think that for young people today, it's a, kind of a different experience on immigration, mm-hmm. and I think that um, you know, it's you know, it does feel like to me, for, as a, I feel like a bit of an outsider uh, to immigration these days, but it does feel a little bit less, uh, seems a little more faceless, I guess, in the process, and well, and especially the last few years, yeah, yeah. The pandemic has really been a hard hit because I feel like um, it's kind of entrenched this idea that client service is no longer a thing. Um, And uh, there's, there just doesn't seem to be the same expectation of, uh, of client service or. um, Are you talking about at IRCC or at McRae? I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, no, at IRCC. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Touche, touche, yeah. And you know, I'll tell you something that that struck me. I mean, seven years at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, a lot of the cases we had were with uh, federal government agencies or departments like RCC, and uh, often employment related, and uh, and sometimes you know customer related for services uh, being rendered. And it it struck me sometimes that you know some of the complaints were over issues that were not sort of life altering, severely damaging, uh, you know, of course, the discrimination related, which is not defending discrimination in any event or, or you know, and, but, you know, the, but, you know, considerable resources devoted to uh, complaints. And, and a lot of times the complaints are not substantiated at the end of the day as well. But, you know, as I say, considerable resources uh, devoted to the investigation and inquiries into, into complaints um, that impacted people's lives in a negative way. And it was always a little bit funny for me kind of thinking, wow, you know, I just think of all these times where, you know, something went wrong for uh, a, a client uh, and there was maybe some culpability on the part of IRCC and they don't have that kind of re- resource or, or, you know, uh, people paying attention to, you know, how badly their lives were impacted over something that went wrong. And, and and I was always left with that thinking, wow, you know, like it's it's kind of disproportionate when you think about it because, and and not to, I'm not saying that IRCC is always wrong, but I think on the other hand, and this is one of the things I'll tell you this is I'll tell you this is a an outsider at a senior level in Ottawa. I told all my people, I said, listen, the worst thing I've seen 
sitting on the other side of the table from the federal government uh, over the years is when bureaucrats never admit they made a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. That's the worst thing. And we're all human and we all make mistakes. And what makes us different is what we do to fix those mistakes after we do it. And so I don't want anyone ever to dodge admitting when we've done something wrong. When we've done something wrong, we own it and we fix it, right? Because I'm sure you guys can think of many, many of those uh, examples in your own careers where you just know somebody did something, made a mistake, and they just won't own up to it and they won't fix it. And and that's wrong, you know. And so it, to the extent that I had some influence over that, uh, I never, never let that happen and never, uh, never encouraged anybody to, to, to walk away from the ownership of something that went wrong. And, uh, and that's, you know, I think one of the, one of the valuable things I could bring to that position, having been opposite IRCC for a long time was to sort of bring that perspective. The other, the other thing that they heard, they, 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 in some ways, the uh, some of the people in the audience were happy to see me leave because I was always complaining about certain things. But you know, one thing that you you could relate to this as well was like, you know, why do they make their websites so complicated all the time, right? Why do they want to change them every six months? It's like, you know, it's not like the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal has got competitors and we have to have a better website than them. No, there's only one place here, and 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 our our overriding goal should be to to make access to the information easy for our stakeholders not to you know uh upgrade the system every six months so that you know we try to click on something oh now you have to download the latest version of adobe or java or something and you know yeah. or you know it won't work because you have enough bandwidth i mean you know that's the thing that sort of that was a bit, constant battle for me to be, to be honest it's like listen we, we we have to remember we're, we're dealing with the public here. we're dealing with marginalized uh populations that really don't non English speakers and you know sometimes people that don't have the most sophisticated access to uh to technology and all this sort of thing especially with the like uh you know more low-income immigrants and all that kind of stuff as well but I, I think the point that you're making too in terms of the the communications like through the pandemic it's like it's impossible to get through to the call center web form requests are not answered and yet the escalation of um, enforcement action on the basis of misrepresentation has only gone up like twice or threefold. Like it's just, it's, it's really intense. And so, um, you know, the kind of thing that you're saying, like um, you would think that there'd be a little bit more give and take, you know, in terms of that recognition of culpability, uh, there's really, there just seems to be no give at all. And, um, and so just the, 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 um, you know, I'm just thinking about <clears throat> there was a time like um, before I went into before I went to law school, even I worked as an adjudicator. And what I found was that just sometimes like getting on a phone with a with a with an applicant who was seeking um, uh, seek, this was they were looking for funds based on um, a complaint that they had made based on uh, this was I was um, dealing with the tainted blood scandal at the time. And sometimes even just making contact with a person and just having a two minute telephone conversation would mean that the entire claim would go away. And so this sort of notion of the efficiency of like, well, just keeping the human contact away is going to make the process run more efficiently. And I think sometimes when there's like the stakes are so high, it's just a certain amount of recognition and acknowledgement of the distress that someone is feeling. It goes a long way, but that like rebuffing all of 
of the effort saying, you know, like not letting somebody know that their application has been received, it means that there's going to be 30 other requests, you know, so it's like, it's a, it's a, an ideology of diminishing returns. So <laughs> I understand this idea, but I think that, um, the idea of there being some recognition of the needs on both sides, I think, as you're saying, it, it actually, um, it, it makes sense, the idea of trying to like reduce the transactions and please don't write to us unless you have a really serious concern. Don't send more than one request. Okay, okay. But there does, like removing all human interaction also is not is not the answer. So, yeah. Well, and what, uh, I mean, I was thinking about what you were saying, David, in terms of the recourse that someone has when they're trying to immigrate versus uh, a discrimination claim before the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. I don't know what the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, like, does it order monetary awards? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, damages up to $40,000 on the statute, but also lost wages and other expenses that people can claim. Whereas, like, a blatant mistake in a visa application, you know, if you judicial review, if someone gets a costs award after having spent their own money on legal fees, if someone in the immigration world gets a cost award of like $500, it's considered a huge win and a rarity. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, the person's out lost wage, couldn't visit their uh, dying relative. Um, the amount of recourse that... Spent $10,000 uh, on legal fees. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like it's, it's just very different treatment. I've been interested that... I. I remember when IRCC assumed control of passport services from uh, Department of Foreign Affairs in 2014. I remember thinking at the time, will the fact that now they're dealing with like all Canadian or most Canadian citizens at some point force that department to improve its quality services or will they eventually just put the thumb on us and I uh, just like watching the passport delays. And I don't know if you saw yesterday that they announced that... Um, in order to address, you know, those systemic issues with passport delays that the department is ordering 801 chairs so that people can uh, be more comfortable when they sit and wait. And to me, it was just emblematic of often the approaches taken to try to fix issues in like visa processing. Like we're going to, we've talked about this on the podcast, how like changing the blue horizontal bar that marks processing time and replacing it with a green vertical bar will be announced with great fanfare <laughs> and just how like some of the decisions just um, don't seem to address the underlying issues. Do you guys ever play those like silly little time management games on your phone, you know, where you, you have to like, you know, you, the little nurse has to run around the room and like deliver the <laughs> glass of water to the patients in the room. And then you use points to put more beds into the, to the room it kind of sounds like one of those like to help the patient's meter go up it sounds a little bit like that doesn't actually fix the problem it just is like a bit of a band-aid solution well you know the it i'll tell you it, it was a very eye-opening experience you know like I said going into ottawa from first of all from the west coast but also from the private sector and having worked on the other side of the table and and it really you know, you, you look at those things about the 800 chairs. I mean, that's the thing I could, I could see that for sure. And, and one of the things that um, I think gets lost is, you know, who are we, you know, who are we serving at the end of the day? Right. And there's always a tendency, I think, to try to make things, you know, in the bureaucracy, try to make things easier for the bureaucrats. Whereas, you know, it's really, you know, we really, 
should remain focused on the people that we're there to serve. And that I think, to, and I'll be very frank about that. I mean, that's one of the tensions I think that, that exists there. And, you know, and there, and there's, you know, several battles I can remember fighting just on that whole point about, you know, like, are we doing this to make our lives easier or is this really going to improve services for the people that were, that we, that were paid to service here, you know? Yeah. And and it sounds like a kind of a thing, crazy uh, way to look at it or a question to ask, but the truth is it's, it's very true. And, and you see that sometimes is that, is that, um, you know, that, that, that Ottawa is a bubble and people who live there kind of joke about it being a bubble, but it really is a bubble. And it's, and sometimes it's very far removed from the real lives of Canadians that, um, you know, that, that depend on them for, uh, for service. No, it. Um, so, do you think you'll you're back? I think you said you're still part time with the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Are you planning on diving back into immigration? Uh, that's a little bit of an unknown question, but I'll tell you I, what I am doing right now is I am uh, I am finishing up one big decision for the um, the CHRT. It's immigration related, so look for that in, in a couple of months from now. That'll be very interesting to the immigration bar. And I'm uh, now working as a part-time uh, contract uh, mediator for the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal. So I'm doing yeah. a number of mediations for them. And another another immigration gig that I've been appointed to, but hasn't started yet, is I am the vice chair of the tribunal for the College of Immigration and Citizenship Consultants. Oh, neat. Congrats. Yeah, wow, so, that sounds interesting. Is yeah, that so something thought, you can do from here? Do you have to move to... I don't That's even know a, where they're based out of. They're based in Burlington, Ontario. Burlington? But that'll be a part-time job for me again, a few days a month. And uh, but I thought, you know, I'll bring kind of a unique combination of administrative uh, law adjudication uh, together with the background in immigration law. It could be of value to them, and I think that they they saw that too. So we'll see how but that this goes. This is like on disciplinary kind of hearings. Is that yes, discipline, yeah. and I think a couple, mostly discipline. I think in a couple of other related areas. Like I said, I haven't started yet, but I have been appointed. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was browsing briefing notes, and there was this redacted appointment to uh, college redacted so maybe that was the like yeah. your appointment um I've, oh, really? I've learned i've learned not to request the copies of those briefing notes because they are just heavily heavily redacted <laughs> but uh maybe that's yours could be exactly oh, by the way i want to commend you guys on this podcast i think this is a great show and uh wonderful for you guys to do this and to uh reach out to the uh the larger immigration community uh, yeah. Well, it's sure. funny you mentioned uh, Peter Scarrow because he used to work at Larley Rosenberg when I started here. Um, and maybe I'll reach out to him as well. So you guys overlapped at Bullhauser. Yes. Oh. Yes. Oh, yeah. Peter uh, Peter and I are still good friends and we go for a beer once in a while. Yeah. And uh, we talk on the phone regularly. And, uh, you know, Peter, um, <laughs> he's quite a character. You got to interview him. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he taught me a lot when I was uh, just starting out. No, and I do like your message um, about how it's important to stay social. Um, yeah, like it's, I think the pandemic, I'm hoping that, you know, remote everything and Zoom everything is not, uh, is not a permanent, as permanent a fixture as it seems to be. Yeah. Yeah. I know it was something that when I was on the CBA executive, there was a real fear that once you go there, it's very hard to go back. And they were talking specifically about the conferences. Um, but I feel like um, 
you know, it is something that once you've done it, the convenience factor um, does kind of win the day. And I think that like, I don't know, just even just personally, that once once you're doing it, you're just kind of, that's the, the mode of doing your work. And uh, I agree with you, Steve. I think that, um, you know, it becomes a bit of, not an addiction, but it's just sort of like it just becomes your mode of doing things. And I, I, I would like to see some of that. Human yeah, not so much work wise, more just like lawyers meeting up. Um, that's why, like you both know, I started that because the uh, the CBABC kind of breakfast social is all still on Zoom. Like I started mm. that monthly dim something. And uh, it's just those little things that you can't do remote. Like our firm in 10 minutes is doing a fried chicken contest because uh, it's national fried chicken day today but, uh, yeah but yeah we'll definitely I even i think even client meetings like i think some of them certainly the majority of that is still going to remain on zoom i think that that's um there's there's still value in that but i think you know for us to go to a fully you know monitor like digitized uh practice i think i do think i go with dennis that something is lost i mean all of our hearings now are online you know i do think that um you know, I, I, I get that it's, it's very efficient and all that sort of thing, but um, I kind of, it's, to some part of me is starting to kind of miss that like face-to-face uh, element with some of my clients that I don't ever get into the same room as, as them anymore. Any uh, final tips to the people just starting out, Dave? Well, like I said, embrace it and, uh, and give your clients the, give them your, the clients a piece of yourself, right? Let them get to know who you are as a, as a Canadian. And I think that will help them. And uh, it just might help you along the way as well. Yeah. I think that's a great piece of advice. I like it. Planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.